So good morning. Uh, if you're just joining us now, I'm Joel of Heart City Church, and I welcome you. Our scripture text for today is the Gospel of Luke. We're going to start in chapter 23, chapter 23, verse 8 through 26. I invite you to turn there. We're actually in the final hours of Jesus' life, a time we fittingly call his passion. I'd like us to lean into the passion with the words of Samuel Crossman, love unknown. My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Crossman, what he's doing is he's actually appropriating the perspective of a naive bystander who is witnessing Jesus' trial and his passion, his death on the cross. And as he's witnessing this, as he's totally naive, he comes to realize this is love. Love unknown, love unappreciated, shown to the loveless. Why? So that they might lovely be. And that includes this bystander. Which begs the question, they ask, why would my Lord do this for me? Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why would the Son of God come and die for me? I remember meeting a Muslim woman who was converted to Christ as a schoolgirl. Some Baptist kids on a school bus actually shared with her the gospel and gave her a Bible that her and her sister had to hide. She took in the message, and she left it all, her former faith and her family. She told me, I was so astonished that God could love me. I grew up knowing a God who could rightly judge and punish me for my sins. But I never knew the Christian God who loved me, and I saw that in Jesus dying for me. So I ask you, is that love known to you? Stanza two of Crossman's hymn. He came from his blessed throne, salvation to bestow, but men made strange and none the longed for Christ would know. But oh, my friend, my friend indeed, who at my lead his life did spend. I draw your transition in that second stanza from the Lord rejected by the world to personal friend. But oh, my friend, my friend indeed. Does that move your heart? To call the royal Lord of heaven, oh, my friend, my friend indeed who spent your life for my need. If you do not yet call the Lord Jesus my friend, 
if that love is as of yet unknown to you, I have good news. Jesus has brought you here today for a reason. Are you willing to be befriended? Let's pray. Father, uh, we come to you now with your word open before us. and We just pray, we plead that your love may become more real to us who are far too naive. Unmask our sin. Manifest our Savior. We pray that you'll do this by the power of your spirit. For our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt-deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, today is significant. We've actually been in Luke since 2020. It was there we read about Jesus coming and his birth. 2021, we experienced 12-year-old Jesus. We saw his early ministry, his preaching, and his miracles. We moved on into his later ministry in 2022. And here we are in 2023. And today, we reach the climax of the story that Jesus foretold back in chapter 9. Today, Jesus will be condemned. And in verse 26, that final verse, we see the cross comes into view. 
The cross is the climax of Christ's course, the reason for his whole race. Now, you may be asking, what is the cross all about? Why does the cross matter so much to Christians? Augustine says that the cross is the pulpit from which Christ preached his love for the world. The cross is the pulpit from which Christ preached his love to the world. And if that's true, and it is, because why else would anyone willingly embrace such horrific torture? It is true, since it is true, since Christ went to the cross to display his love, we ought to do our best to appropriate it, to try and take it into the core of our being. And I speak to you as intelligent people. Has anyone else ever loved you in such a manner? The cross is God's taking initiative. The cross, actually the sinful divide, dividing him and sinful mankind to establish peace with us. The cross is why we can be friends with holy God if we are willing to be befriended. That's why Jesus came. It's the supreme expression of his love, his cross. And it calls for a response, which is what Luke wants us to see today in our text. We're going to consider this text. I have three subheadings. First, Jesus' silence. Next, his substitution. And lastly, his sovereignty. His silence, his substitution, and his sovereignty. Now, in less than 24 hours, Jesus has been illegally arrested, betrayed by a disciple, abandoned by them. He's been beaten. He was mocked throughout the whole night. Come morning time, the Jews commenced a kangaroo court to condemn him for blasphemy, for saying that he was the Son of God, which he was. They next brought him, Jesus, to the governor, Pontius Pilate, as the Romans were the only one who had the power to execute a man. And they brought a completely different set of charges. And Pilate saw through them all. He said, Jesus is innocent. We saw that last week. But the Jews persisted. And so Pilate, what did he do? He punted Jesus to Herod, who was over all the Galileans. And that's where we pick up today in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but he made no answer. He made no answer. Jesus' love right now, friends, is being seen in his silence before Herod and his accusers. Jesus offers no defense here. Did you notice that actually Jesus never speaks once in our entire reading today? Jesus is silent because as he told in the last chapter, he has come to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 53. He must be numbered with the transgressors, so he must be silent like a lamb before its shears. He must not open his mouth. Jesus is silent and he won't give any sign to Herod except the sign of Jonah. Actually, Jesus had said back in chapter 13, verse 32, when Herod, he heard Herod wanted to kill him, he said, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. I know a few of us here might like being called foxy, <laughs> but Jesus is not being kind to Herod. 
Jesus made clear back then that his signs would come to an end when it was time for the cross and his resurrection. And that time is Luke 23. All Herod gets from Jesus, despite all the questions, is the silent treatment. Full stop. Friends, this is a scary thing. Jesus is silent, yes, to fulfill his mission. But there's further reason Jesus has no word for Herod. One of the scariest teachings that you'll find in the Bible is the silence of God. Once King Amaziah told the prophet Isaiah, or the prophet Amos, he said, Stop preaching God's word about sin to Israel. Oh, Amaziah, be careful what you wish for. In Amos 8, verses 11 and 12, God says, Okay, your wish is my command. The dialogue is over. And you are now going to experience a famine, not of bread or water, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. And you know what happens to the ten tribes of northern Israel without God's word? They're lost forever. They're lost forever to history. As is the case for Herod. Why, Joel? Remember back in chapter 4, Herod arrested John the Baptist after he called John out for his adultery. Now, Herod actually surprisingly didn't kill John right away. I mean, considering his family's reputation, actually his father was the one who murdered all the Bethlehem babies when the wise men said, oh, there's a king been born there. Why not? Why didn't Herod kill Jesus or John right away? Well, we hear that Herod knew John was righteous and John's message made him glad. John's message made him glad. What was John's message? Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Herod heard that he could be forgiven, and imagining that made him glad. And we read right here, Herod was very glad to see Jesus. He had long desired this. And if we stop right there, we might have hope for Herod. But Luke says, Herod just wants to see a sign. Jesus, entertain me. Herod is glad to see Jesus because he wants a sign, not forgiveness of his sins. Why not? Why is it no longer interesting to him? Because Herod loved his sin more than he loved the promised Savior and the salvation he was offering. Herod never repented when he felt that conviction when John preached. He never repented. Friends, no amount of sermons can save us if we persistently ignore the invitation. Herod never repented of his adultery, of his lust, of his sexual temptation. So God let that sin, that sin he wouldn't repent of, become the catalyst for his own word famine. For homework this week, I invite you to read Mark 6, how Herod's daughter-in-law came and danced at Herod's birthday party. And it so pleased Herod's lustful heart, he promised to do whatever she asked for. Probably imagine, oh, she'll want some jewelry or some perfume or, or a party. Or He never imagined her to come up and say, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter.
the madness of the sin he loved stole the message of the Savior who loved him. Sinclair Ferguson says, well, unless we silence sin, sin will silence conscience. Unless we silence sin, sin will silence conscience. Herod's heart deceived him. It's not that big a deal. You can repent tomorrow. Don't worry about it right now. It's okay. And the more and more he pushed it off, the more sin seared his conscience. I know this is heavy, but I could make a list of folks, including pastors, who used to come to church Sunday after Sunday, who imagined a better life, but they didn't think they needed to kill their sins, including lust. And almost everyone that I can think of right now, they're now far from God, and they're miserable souls. Listen, dear ones, don't harden your hearts when you feel conviction of your sin during the preaching. You see, that's the Holy Spirit. That's a wonderful thing sent by God to reveal his love for you. Love unknown, actually, that can actually set you free. When you feel that slightest tug on your heart, rejoice at that moment. Rejoice and believe the good news. God wants to set you free from sin. God wants to set you free from shame. Don't resist. Or it may well be you'll find yourself despising and rejecting Jesus who came to save you. Look at hard-hearted Herod. He's face to face with the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The one that John promised. And Herod has zero desire to worship him, to fall on his knees and thank him, to love and adore the Lord Jesus. All he wants is, Jesus, entertain me. And because he won't, he lets his soldiers mock Jesus to play dress up, dressing him up like a king, having no clue that Jesus truly is. Verse 10. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Now everyone's joined in with the Jewish religious leaders who have been bringing this assault on Jesus' person. And notice Jesus remained silent, still silent. Do you see love unknown? Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. But now they rather rage with the Gentiles to blot out Jesus' memory from the earth. Crossman writes, why? What has my Lord done? What makes this rage and spite? He made the lame to run. He gave the blind their sight. Sweet injuries. Yet they at these themselves displease and against him rise. Jesus' love is unknown to Herod. Ah, but, but, but at least he makes a new friend, <laughs> Pilate. Do you realize that Jesus always brings people together, whether on his side or on the other side of the divide? Always. In fulfillment of Psalm 2, enemy leaders now join together against Jesus. But at least Herod won't have the blood of this greater prophets that have it on his hands. 
So we move from Herod to Pilate and from silence now to substitution in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I really tried to imagine getting into Herod's person. Here comes Jesus again and him saying, no, 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 not again. During the questioning, <laughs> he had actually, Jesus had told him he's a king and he actually comes now dressed up royally. Now, Pilate had declared Jesus innocent, but the Jews, remember, they kept screaming at him, so he thought he'd get himself off the hook, you know, the old punt in football, you punt it down the field, and you figure now I we'll have to deal with that for a while, they're far away. No, Jesus is back, and he's dressed up like a king, just as he told Pilate. Now, I'm not sure if Pilate knew anything about the Old Testament, but Deuteronomy 19.15 and Numbers 35.30 state clearly that if two witnesses find a person not guilty, according to Jewish law, they were to go free. In any case, whether he knows it or not, Pilate says, Jesus was tried by both Herod and myself. None of your charges stick. I will therefore release him. No, 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 no. He doesn't say that, does he? Pilate says the crowd in verse 16, I will therefore punish and release him. This is injustice. He's willingly going to punish Jesus to appease the crowd. And don't get this wrong. This is no slap on the wrist for Jesus and then I send him off. Pilate is saying, I'm happy to flog Jesus for you, this innocent man. This is a horrifying and excruciating sanction. It's the shredding of flesh all the way down to the bone. Many of them did not even survive a flogging. Friends, we saw in Herod the danger of letting our heart deceive us. In Pilate, we see the danger of letting our culture mislead us. Pilate sees the crowd and he doesn't want to do the right thing and then end up becoming unpopular. Any of us struggle with that? Or he fears that this scene might threaten his power if he doesn't appease people. So he says, I'm willing to do a great, great injustice if it will make you happy. And with this capitulation, the crowd already knows they got him. You realize that? But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. <laughs> you think Pilate expected this? I give him an inch and they take a mile? You have this large crowd screaming for a really strange substitute. The crowd wants a guiltless man to be murdered and a murderer to be treated as guiltless. They're proposing a ridiculous exchange, especially if you're Pilate. I mean, Barabbas started an insurrection against his government. He's scheduled for the cross, by the way. That's what they did with insurrectionists. What Roman ruler in his right mind would put Barabbas back out on the street and substitute Jesus for him. Clearly, Pilate doesn't want this. We can see that in our next verse, verse 20, starting there. Pilate addressed them once more, 
desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt-deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. This is a sobering text, isn't it? Every Sunday, for 2,000 years, Christians recite how Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pilate stands alone in all of human history as the one who condemned the Son of God to die wrongly. I think only Judas is more tragic. I actually find myself feeling sorry for Pilate. Can you imagine him as a schoolboy, one day thinking to himself, I'm going to make it my life's goal to be a public servant for my nation, for my empire. No doubt his parents were proud and they envisioned an amazing future. He must have been a smart kid. Imagine the legacy. Not that their boy would go down as the greatest coward in all of human history. Setting a guilty man free and crucifying the Lord just to be a people pleaser. There's a lesson here about not being misled by the culture, friends. About living to please a world that is hostile to God. And then later realizing you've just made a whole hash of everything. And you've wrecked other people along the way. A deceiving heart like Herod and a misleading culture both can actually keep us from knowing God's love. And I want us to understand that. And I commend us to repent and to pray for other, each other about this, to be bringing the times when we're struggling with this. I want to move a different direction at this point because I'm convinced this text calls us to major on the minors, not on the majors. What do you mean, Joel? What I mean is that, yes, we can learn from the twin tragedies of Herod and Pilate, but you and I were not the major players in this text. Then who are we, Joel? Well, we're in one of two camps. We're either Barabbas or we're Simon. Let us start with the Barabbas. Verse 25. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Imagine being Barabbas, being in a Roman jail cell. You've murdered people. You've caused insurrection. And you were caught red-handed. And you're simply waiting for the day when they'll announce your crucifixion. And maybe today, there's actually crucifixion scheduled. There's two other crosses. And suddenly you hear it. The guards unlocking the door. And one shouts, Barabbas, it's all over for you. And as they walk over to you, you'd probably be trembling, right? Thinking this is it. But then one of them starts undoing your chains and says, you're free to go. A Jew named Jesus of Nazareth. He's going to die in your place. <laughs> Friends, I don't know much about Barabbas. We don't know. 
Barabbas understands firsthand what the gospel is all about. Substitution. You'll see uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 on the bottom of the page opposite our text. I want this to be our memory verse until Easter. A verse that will help us take in the love of God for us at the cross. Let's read it together. Verse to know on the page opposite the text. Let's say together. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I really encourage you to memorize that. This verse tells us that in love, God sent Jesus from heaven to earth to become our substitute. Now from our perspective, right? Our perspective, we know Jesus is innocent, treated unjustly, not deserving the cross, and it brings us sorrow. Let me ask you, what is God the Father's perspective on Jesus in Luke 23? From the Father's perspective, Jesus is the guiltiest, awfulest, ugliest criminal to have ever walked the planet. The Father sent his Son to become pure evil so that he could pour out his all-consuming wrath on this horrible individual from the Father's perspective. Why? For our sake. For us. Jesus became our substitute, taking the curse that each and every one of us deserve. Jesus says just to say a bad word about someone is like being a murderer. Have you ever done that? We're no different than Barabbas. But in Jesus, we are made right with God, made righteous, and set free to live a new and better life. That's good news, friends. Do you understand that? I pray that you do. I pray that you do. I found myself wondering about Barabbas. A new lease on life as he walks out of the jail cell. What did he do next? I wonder if he decided to investigate this Jesus of Nazareth. Did he follow the crowds out to Golgotha? Many of them who loved this man, he could clearly see they loved and cared about this man and this guy's dying for him. Others yelling, crucify him. And this Jesus is just pressing on as though he wants to go to the cross. Did Barabbas remain a naive bystander? Or did Barabbas begin to know a love unknown? Sometimes they crowd his way and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day hosannas to their king. Then crucify is all their breath and for his death they thirst and cry. Did a tear roll down Barabbas' cheek as he looked up and saw the dying man on the cross? Did he say, thank you, Jesus, for being my substitute? He knows that that man died in his place, but could he say, Galatians 2.20, could he say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Did he say that? We can't know. But more importantly, is today and you and I, have you said that? Have you investigated Jesus? He's worthy of your investigation and his atonement, his substitution for you to make you right with God. And all you have to do is believe and come to him. I pray you will not linger. I preach as a dying man to dying men, women, girls, and boys. The good news is that God sent a substitute and he's a sovereign substitute. And he can and he will save you. Sovereignty is our final point, and that simply means God is in control of all things. You realize Herod couldn't have killed Jesus even if he wanted to? <laughs> Jesus was in control. And while Pilate is guilty for this injustice, Jesus was going to the cross regardless. The whole Bible, all of it, points to the Son of God dying on the cross and being raised for us. You see, the cross was Christ's pulpit to preach his love to the world to minor folks like you and I, like Simon, and I want to close with him. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. In one verse, Luke introduces us to a man we haven't heard about, Simon of Cyrene. By the way, Cyrene, where's that, Joel? It's modern Libya. This is a Jew who's traveled some distance. His name's Simon. He's a Jew. I Googled it yesterday. 783 miles. He doesn't have a car, by the way. <laughs> That's about a month's journey. Simon is taking a major holiday trip. Undoubtedly, he's heading to celebrate Passover. And at long last, after this long journey, he sees the holy city. Can you imagine his excitement? He's drawing near, and what's all this? sees this crowd. He's like, what's going on? These Roman soldiers. Who's this bloody, beaten up man who's staggering under the weight of this cross? Oh my goodness, this is awful. Glad I'm not heading that way. What would Simon be thinking? Well, if he knows his Bible, he knows that anybody hanged on a tree is cursed by God. Whatever this fellow did must have been God-awful. And as he gets closer to the guy and heading towards Jerusalem, all of a sudden, hey, you there! And a couple of Roman soldiers seize Simon and pull him over right next to the cursed man. And they put the cross beam on Simon and point Simon the opposite direction of the holy city. Apparently Jesus is in such bad shape after the flogging, they're afraid he's going to die and won't make it to the cross. But God is sovereign. Now, if you and I were there watching this, we might be thinking, <laughs> poor Simon, he has the worst luck of anybody. Simon had traveled a month to celebrate Passover, and he arrives, he's on the doorstep, and now he has to do a 180. Oh, and it's worse, because being forced to carry a cross makes Simon unceremonial and clean. He can't now go and worship. His whole trip is ruined. Oh, by the way, friends, there's no such thing as luck. God is sovereign. Jesus could have let Simon just pass on by, gone to the wrong Passover lamb. He would have never known Jesus, would have never known his love. 
But Jesus snatched Simon away from his plans and all of his purposes for his life. And at this moment, Jesus befriended Simon. And Simon got to be the first disciple to carry his cross. And Simon's life was forever changed by this moment. We read in our Bibles in an early Christian tradition about Simon and his sons who came to faith, were influential Christians who believed and followed Jesus. And you see, somewhere along the way, Simon discovered that this cursed man was unlike anyone he had ever seen before. As he followed this bloodied, beaten Galilean carpenter, he saw this guy was concerned about the women crying for him on the way to the cross. And there at Calvary, he saw this Jewish criminal showing concern for a fellow criminal and transforming his life there on the cross. And I don't know, but maybe Simon stuck around long enough to hear Jesus cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We don't know. But the Spirit changed Simon's heart somewhere along the way. And he embraced Jesus as the Savior of sinners. Savior of sinners, just like himself. It was his effectual calling moment. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. I close by saying, friends, I know some of you have had Simon experiences (laughs) because God grabbed a hold of your life at some point and turned you completely around. Anybody here want to give a witness to God's sovereign mercy? Some of us here may have thought at first being a Christ follower would be great. And then you realize being a Christian and carrying the cross is the hardest thing in the world except for the alternative. God's placed you in hard situations. That's your cross to bear. But you discover along the way as you keep your eyes fixed on the one right in front of you, the Lord Jesus, you begin to discover his love. Love unlike any other love that we've seen in this world. Being befriended by Jesus, friends, means being his disciple. And you can trust that God is working sovereignly in and through that cross that you have to bear. And he wants to bring about a new song that you'll begin to sing in your life every day going forward as you discover his passion. We'll close with a guy named Crossman. Quite quite a nice name. Here might I stay and sing. No story so divine. Never was love, dear King. Never was grief like thine. This is my friend. And whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to a sobering text. It's a text that ought to sober us because your love is so massive and we haven't even begun to take it in. But we know that our Lord Jesus is our friend and this is the greatest thing, the greatest gift you could ever give. We ask and pray as we continue this season of the Passion, Lord, that you'll continue to impress on our hearts the great love that our Lord Jesus has for us, the great love that you have for us, Father. So will you send your spirit a new measure that we may in fact embrace Jesus more fully in our lives, that we may sing his praise, 
and grant that we might be able to share that with some needy souls who as of this point still find that it is love unknown. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.